so in that sense you can say archetypes are real when they are images as such from the environment which we then learn and acquire on this instinctive base but the instinct and the genome even deeper than the instinct they are the most important parts and they drive everything yeah, that, that's a drama. Uh, Desperate Romantics on the BBC. Mm. One of the um, best things I've ever done. Without a doubt. It doesn't um, strictly keep to the history, but what it does do is draw out the essence of those personalities amped up mm. uh, and, and drawn out into sharp relief. So you had aspects of the masculine, aspects of the feminine. You had uh, very deep, what would normally be called archetypal aspects thereof. Uh, also an awful lot about sexuality and about instinct in particular and it's a workshop I would say would you not agree love to understand the difference between instinct and archetype and where creativity links both together mm. so absolutely superb series you can get it on DVD mm. courtesy of the BBC no doubt you can get it somewhere else um, some other source on YouTube um, without courtesy of the BBC. Um, whichever you choose, I recommend you get it. It's absolutely amazing. Mm. Why? Well, why not? It's all about women. It's about, it's all about women. <laughs> beautiful, feminine women stimulating young men to achieve themselves fully in terms of not only their biological mm. adaptation and expression of their genome, but also their creativity. Um, and it used up their revolutionary energy as well to bring about change in the world. So there's so much going on then, so much. They're incredibly talented artists. Um, but as well as that, they knew, they knew instinctively they had to express what they could experience through the senses that resonated. They would have said of their soul, I would say of their instincts, mm. uh, and then bringing that out. But you also saw the frustration of that too. Um, in John Ruskin, mm. um, the breakdown of his marriage, um, issues of mating and relating, uh, the absolute necessity when you're a, a creative to generate new things, new ideas, new expressions, which nevertheless are also old because they're uh, predicated mm. upon deep structures, deep instinctive structures, some would say archetypal. They were reviled by the establishment too, weren't they, they were. of their yeah. day, yes. which I think is interesting because it's it's relevant to the times that we're in now too. Yeah. The idea of young men getting together and um, having this tremendous energy and force for change and connecting that with their creativity. And uh, in a lot of the um, exhibitions of the time, for example, their mm. work would be put where nobody could see it, basically. And but they, they, they challenged the old order, yeah. they challenged the old ways of painting, they did. and um, you know, in, in that regard, it's inspirational. Oh, yeah, I think this idea of young men coming together with a lot of energy to produce change in the culture, yeah, a pre Raphaelite brotherhood, yes. In fact, we yes. was ourselves, we were so um, inspired by them that with respect to our work with creatives in the film industry, that we were looking to do something similar. Mm. Um, bringing together people who were skilled in different ways, uh, filmmakers, writers, uh, artists, musicians, and without giving them a structure, allow them to create through a common inspiration that we would all share, and then we would produce collectively amongst that group something which would be of value. And from our perspective, we were looking to bring young young ideas out into film mm. um, and give them their proper expression with a pre-Raphaelite cast to the way that they use colour yes. uh, and an understanding of what Jung called archetypes. 
or perhaps collective representations, if you wish, in, in another language. Absolutely, because if you follow the classical line, then the character uh, Lizzie Siddle, yeah. um, you could argue, um, exemplifies the platonic form. Yes, that's the, the girl on the front the cover. The girl on the, the book, front cover. Who historically was the first supermodel yes. and, of and her day. Yes, that, that's right. And yeah. um, from the perspective of the animus, well, you've got a group of men. Mm. You've got that masculine uh, collective thing going on as well. And, um, you know, they all uh, represent different aspects of the masculine, but they're, but they're portrayed collectively, like I say, in a group which is typical of... Um, yeah how the animus is portrayed in, in classical Jungian yeah. psychology. So, yeah. The way they portrayed Rossetti was he was a Lothario. Yes. Uh, probably the less skilled artist, but the most passionate in an expressive yeah. form. Yes. Um, and Lizzie Siddle, who, who was a shock girl, a simple shock girl, mm. flame red hair. Mm. Uh, when they saw her, that was going to be the woman. They all wanted to paint her. They, they all wanted to have a relationship with her. Uh, it was animating for their soul and for their creativity. And they used her to launch themselves and their uh, pre-Raphaelite manifesto for, for change in art. Uh, and she was absolutely captivated by them, wasn't she, as well, by the men. Um, and the, the attention she got, but they destroyed her. They did. They did. Um, and I was just going to add into that too that um, one of the kind of the, the the surprises really in there is is how good an, an artist she is herself. Yeah. And um, she's obviously uh, striving to develop herself creatively, but is somehow on the margins mm. of things, obviously because of the, the the times in which they lived. Um, you know that that didn't help, but um, you you can see. Her struggles as um, as a woman and, like I say, as a creative um, in, in that particular time, and she was better than a lot of the she was the men she was uh, in terms of her technical ability. Yeah, um, and they were somewhat overshadowed by that, weren't they? Or yes. They, they, there were some attempts to kind of um, to kind of control for that, mm. to make sure that uh, she kind of almost stayed in her place in a way, which mm. I know is an awful way of putting it, but that's essentially what it was. Yes, she wasn't did. allowed yeah. to exceed a certain no, because she would have boundary of success. Yeah, yeah. She, she would have frightened them. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's an amazing uh, energy mm. in that dramatised version mm. of it. But then you've got uh, John Ruskin as well, who was their patron at the Royal Society of Arts, and mm. he was um, very, very sexually repressed, wasn't he? He was. Uh, his yes. marriage fell apart, and young Millet ran off with, with her. Yes. Um, with the wife, mm. married, and they were successful, had loads of children, and they that, did. that was all yes. happily ever after. It was. But again, it's a drama of so. the anima and the animus, and um, yeah. creativity running through. Yeah, and unfortunately, Ruskin was somewhat attracted to, younger, shall we say, younger, younger people. women. Yeah. Younger yes. women, very uh, young women. Yeah, bordering um, on being bordering inappropriately on yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I ask you what would appear to be a cynical question on the surface, but it's not? Yeah. To drop into pure biology here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, those those young men, yeah, you mentioned, was it Lizzie or something? Lizzie Siddle. Yeah. 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 yeah, so you can see how a lot of their, you know, look at Pangsep, <coughs> seven basic emotional systems, yeah. how lots of those would be flowing to her, mm. including yeah. seeking and lust yeah. and care and everything Definitely. else. In which case, biologically, what's the point in painting her? 
what's the point in painting it? Mm. Well, it's a vehicle for the expression of their energy, and that will give them. No, I mean, they wanted it. They wanted fame. They wanted notoriety. They wanted money, um, and it was a way of ascending the social dominance hierarchy and, and staking their claim. If you watch the uh, the drama, you see they're struggling with money all the time, yes. particularly when they're young. Yeah. Uh, but they're using the platonic form of Lizzie to be the means to bring their potential out both financially mm. and creatively and in terms of their status as well, their global status, which was uh, very important. So you have competing uh, instincts all at work there uh, and resolving out through creativity. Mm. So, so you can make a very good case then for that particular style of art because if they knew in their minds, which should be very intelligent, mm. especially if they were you know, push, pushed aside, that um, people would be drawn to that style of image. Oh yes. And so, so when you know, to, to put it into context, of course, the, the Lady of Shalott, which is our banner, was by John William Waterhouse. Yeah. I don't believe he's one of the core pre-Raphaelite guys. Not, he was no. slightly after. He was influenced by them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but like I know, when, whenever I look at that picture, yeah. you know, just like a glancing, it's like that's really lovely. If yeah. I sit and I stare, which I do do sometimes, it is a vroom, it, yeah. it, it, it it sucks you in. Yeah. So I guess you can only do that with, I hate to use the word, but archetypal material. Like yes. Compared to say modern art or something like that. Yeah. To me yeah. personally, that does nothing. Mm. And I wonder if there, there's there's a somewhat of a universal law there that one oh, is yeah. objectively better than the other. Well, there must be. Uh, there absolutely must be. They did know what they were doing, but they knew what they were doing instinctively. That's the difference. Um, you see, the, the borderline between Jung's concept of archetypes instincts and then collective representations within the culture is where people very often get themselves lost mm. they really do they think because they experience an image externally then it already exists internally mm. it doesn't this is so important uh, to understand uh, Jung himself purely from within a, within a Jungian framework suggested strongly that archetypes were virtual images they have no specific form they're empty they have to be filled by experience of someone or something and then it takes on a specific form which is learned that's the implication the obvious implication and that will narrow down even more specifically to an individual but there are collective uh, ways of responding to images too Jung suggested that that was because of his concept of archetypes. Social psychologists have a different view. Uh, some of the uh, more recent developments in Jungian and I'll say neo-Jungian rather than post-Jungian would agree with that. And it's on the basis that th there are categories, I'm going to sound a bit Kantian here and I don't mean to, innate categories of experience that are programmed into the brain. They're already there basically to deal with the environment. Uh, we anticipate a natural environment, trees, rivers, that kind of thing. Uh, and certain shapes are in there as well. But mm. also the shape of a human face is something we are programmed innately to respond to, mm. primarily the mother. We respond to the mother that way. Mm. We have no choice over that. Our cortex is, is undifferentiated. It's, it's basically a blank slate. People don't want to believe that, but it's true. At birth, the cortex principally is a blank slate. The um, settling into specific areas with specific functions will unfold if experience is normal according to a general pattern. But if, for example, somebody is born blind, then the primary visual cortex in the occipital uh, lobe gets um, reassigned and does something else. Mm. The brain is very, very plastic. The cortex, anyway, is very plastic. 
to the limbic system, the brainstem, the deep structures, they're not. They're not plastic. They are firmly set and they deal with our instincts. They deal with our primary emotions and with our drives. And in there, that's where you're going to find if archetypes have any kind of uh, innate form at all, they'll be there. They're not in the cortex. They're really not. So it's not a left or right brain thing at all. That's just, I'm afraid, pop psychology nonsense. If you don't want to believe that, well, that's your view. Uh, I can only feel sorry for you, I'm afraid. We're born with an expectation of certain things like human faces and, and so forth. This fundamentally is encoded in the genome as an, and is expressed structurally through deep brain structures, not in the cortex at all. The cortex is involved mainly in learning. That's why we have such an enlarged cortex. So we store memories, we store experiences there. So this is where Jung's archetypal image takes place if you like it's formed and stored within your cerebral cortex but it's on a much deeper foundational level than that but really where the experience comes from is the environment so in that sense archetypes as Jung said are inexperienceable as such that's a real problem because it means you can't disprove them and you can't prove them it's not a scientific uh, mm. concept at all it just fails the first test with respect to them being scientific. Where you can observe them is through their images. Their images are in the culture. Uh, culture is a massive source of transmission of acquired knowledge, which then fills the cortex up through uh, learning and experience. But the fundamental drive comes from the genome and up through the brainstem. Then you get this resultant effect, which we can call an archetypal image. And because we're all pretty much the same, regardless of our race, our culture, or, or our historical time period, these images do take on a collective representation. So in that sense, you can say archetypes are real when they are images as such from the environment, which we then learn and acquire on this instinctive base. But the instinct and the genome, even deeper than the instinct, they are the most important parts and they drive everything. So beauty is biological? Yeah, absolutely, it is, without, yeah, yeah. without, without a doubt. Social psychologists have, have proven this. It's obvious from anthropology as well. Um, there are variations in what people regard as being beautiful, but that's a, usually a cultural modification. We can all agree on objectively what's not. In a, in a way. Well, we can, but you have to go really deep. You, you, you have to step away from culture, the cultural variation, which is the surface structure of variation. And then you get down to a level which Plato intuited as being the platonic form, which is nevertheless biological. Um, his intuition, basically, if, if you like, was an introspection into his own psyche, uh, into his own instincts, and beneath that, of course, images arising, expectations arising from his genome. Mm. And because it's genomic, he can make a general statement about it, because we all have roughly the same genome. Um, in that sense, then, um, you can say that archetypes are anticipations which are genomic, which take on their form through instinct, interacting with culture uh, to produce a specific resultant image, which with minor variations will uh, have a collective appeal. But there is no evidence whatsoever that Jung's concept of, of uh, an archetype has any kind of biological representation at all that will upset a lot of people i'm sorry though but i would invite anybody who disagrees to present proof that they exist biologically you can't you can demonstrate that they exist in the culture 
and you can say that people produce them within their minds as images, they produce them in, in terms of um, representational art, as with the pre-Raphaelites, but that is not the archetype in itself that Jung suggested did exist. One thing he did say, which was of huge importance really and is often overlooked, is that archetypes are the self-portraits of instincts, which means they are created by them. How can they create them? It's a biological structure, uh, an instinct which impels us towards action, they're teleological, they have a goal in mind, and it's work, as Mark Solm says, out in the world, it's action on the world that an instinct is concerned with. So once the instinct acts, it acts in the world and produces a cultural representation, not a biological one, except insofar as when you internalize that image, it affects and changes your brain. Because if you have an internal memory or learning, you are affecting neurogenesis. You are, you are creating images yourself through your interaction with the environment. But these things don't come from within in the way that I'm afraid that, that Jung suggested they did. And that unfortunately, a lot of people who are given over to fantasy believe that they, that, that they do. This is why the concept of an archetype in itself has no clinical relevance whatsoever. Archetypal images, yes, because they are made up of real experience by individual people through collective, common collective experience in the world. So, if, so we'll take images like this, this, and this. You can't see that, but they're beautiful pre-Raphaelite women. Uh, just I guess simply put with, with that they're images or pixels on the eye or whatever mm -hmm. that happen to have resonance with a biological structure that activates yeah. an instinct to serve and complete the genome yeah and of course that doesn't mean that archetypes exist it's, it's just images but you can also have just a strong reaction from things that aren't archetypal at all for example mm -hmm. this because like for you being a policeman's hat, mm -hmm. that would have far more of a resonance than it would say for me oh it does is that archetypal no it's not it's learned yeah, the archetype of the policeman it's like don't think so. No, there's, there's no archetype of the police at all. Um, but there is an instinctive reaction to the role of being a police officer or responding to a police officer. That's completely different. And if you get down into the instincts then with respect to this, you're going to understand an awful lot about why we respond and particularly what's happening in the culture at the moment. Because as we predicted like nine months ago, in the UK, the police were going to turn into predators, and they have done, and that's demonstrable. You can see oh, that. Yeah. Uh, they're acting like uh, pack animals. Uh, they take down the weak, the stragglers, the elderly, the women. Um, they mob their victims. They dogpile them. They aggressively subdue them. This is how hyenas, hyenas would work. A pack of hyenas would do that. A pride of lions would do that. They minimise the damage to themselves, which all predators do, they have to, and then they take down the weak and the vulnerable, and they demonstrate their intimidation and their power. So that is all about instinct, not about archetype. You, you can, just to come back to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood again then for mm. a moment, Steve, you can see um, within the brotherhood and, and between them just the levels that they were at yes. individually. For example, um, Holman Hunt was really quite repressed sexually, yes. and he actually moved away from painting Lizzie Siddle mm. and started to, to paint prostitutes instead. He did. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's uh, it's portrayed with a lot of humour in the series, isn't it? But, it is. but there's an un the underlying message really is a serious one. Very. And then you get somebody like Rossetti who really um, 
at, at that biological level had no problem with mm. his instincts whatsoever no. No. Um, in, in terms of his relationships to women and you see a lot of that being played out you do. which I think is very interesting too. That's a, that's a really good point because Holman Hunt was um, he's portrayed anyway as being very Christian yes. and the angst of his religion in collision with his instincts, mm. finds some resolution through his art. That's right. Where it's projected into that as a container. Yes. Um, and it's over, overly religious, overly Christianized, yeah. and then he, yeah. he tortures himself with his religious belief yes. in antagonism with his instincts. Mm. And then you have Millet, who was young, a virgin, inexperienced yes. in life, and uh, the most talented of all the painters. Definitely the most technically uh, talented. And yeah. he bypassed both of them eventually as his genomic potential unfolded. Yes. Uh, Rossetti was, was almost pure instinct, like you say, wasn't yes. he? And yes. Holman Hunt was a transitional figure, and Millet mm. was the guy who fully yes. articulated it. Rossetti um, was probably, uh, well, I would argue, the, the least technically talented yes, out yeah, of them. Yeah. But um, he was probably, in, I say, the most adapted. Um, well, it's probably arguable now I've said that. I mean, maybe Millet? Because ultimately, uh, yeah. ultimately, because of his um, ability to mate and relate, literally yeah. saw him through all his challenges. Yeah. Yes. And uh, he probably, out of all of them, probably suffered the least. Yeah. Yes. In fact, you could actually, without too much of a stretching of the point, yeah. you, you could say that uh, Rossetti was Freud, Holman yes. Hunt was Ardler. Yes, you could. And uh, Millet, potentially, was young, in the sense that they embodied those psychodynamics. Mm. Uh, Millet was more, in, more into the non-religious, transcendent, spiritual adaptation and the withholding of the biology uh, because he emphasised that. He was more into that and he got he achieved more than the other two. Mm. Um, but as you say, Rossetti was just full on uh, instinct, yes. passion, creativity yes. Yes. Uh, and more of an instant attraction to women. Mm. Because of that, he had that Paleolithic quality, yeah. but he was also hermetic, wasn't oh, he? Very he was much uh, so. mercurial. Yeah, uh, had all of that, yeah. and that compensated for his lack of other things. In many ways, very socially adapted. Very, because yes. as you as you rightly said before, they were all probably most of them struggling financially. Yes, they and were. he would use that charm. To get, oh, yeah. to get food and drink or whatever he needed in yes. order to survive. He would use the Freudian side to yes. satisfy the Adlerian yes, side, would. where yeah. it was, uh, I would say, uh, Holman Hunt repressed Freud, but he kind of lived, he was very, very much into morals, uh, into ethics, into what was right, yes. about doing things for people yeah. uh, through his, his religious beliefs. So his painting was to be for the people. This was to bring in religion. This was to show how it should be done. So he appeared to have a lot of social adaptation, Holman Hunt. And Millet was misfired uh, with respect to the first two. Uh, he was like uh, young without Freud and Adler, but in the end he scooped all of them up and he, he, he delivered on more. Mm. Yeah. But again, going back to to Holman Hunt, um, the relationship that he formed with the prostitute, he tried to um, he tried to change her fundamental nature. It's just a social interest. It, it, it is. Yeah, he tried Adler's social interest, indeed yeah. to make her into something that she wasn't, and it wouldn't take. No, it wasn't. Which is no. interesting in and of yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So it, it is a psychodrama. It is. Yeah hugely important, really, to to grasp these things and how important these dynamics are. Mm. It was certainly a force for change. There's no doubt about that at all. Yeah. Uh, and it shows what you can do, a group of men can do, when they get together and they're yeah. determined enough to, to push the boundaries. And it did widen out. There were other, uh, other pre-Raphaelite yes. brothers later yeah. and then people who were affiliated to them, but mm. they were very controlling about who they allowed in. Yeah. 
um, and they fell out amongst themselves, which happens in pop groups, for yeah, example. Yeah, and they were similar to that, weren't they, in their own way? Yeah, they were. But creativity is hugely important because it, it delivers your seeking system out into the world through novelty. Mm. But no it, novelty oh, brings about change. It does. Um, just to pick up on James point earlier about modern art um, well whether it's modern art or it's that or any other form of art for that matter it nearly always expresses that person's libido it yes. expresses what they are yes. so you know with so, people so who what are, would modern art be then well absolutely well that's the thing isn't it James um, but where you see um, I'm thinking of sort of more unpalatable forms of art shall we say even more than just just going yeah. beyond abstract sort of forms of art um, you know, you you can see the under underlying dynamics. You can literally see where that person's life force is by the kind yeah. of images that they produce and the way that they express it. And yeah. sometimes it's uh, it's not very palatable no. at all. It's that rule again of by their libido. Shall yes, we it know is. Them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we could do this kind of creativity in, in psychotherapy and depth psychology, and we did have it with Freud, Adler and Jung, and the others in, the, in that early circle. They were kind of a pre-Raphaelite brotherhood in a way of, of their day in their field, and just like the originals, they all fell out and did their own thing, but taken together they made a huge contribution. Mm -hmm. But we need another pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, we need one now for depth psychology, which actually brings in the Jungian element with the creativity. We need, we need Freud, let's be really honest about this, he's had a bad press, we need to rehabilitate Freud, that's happening now, he's been brought back into neuroscience where he started, mm. and uh, bringing instincts back into focus. We need Adler, we desperately need Adler to get the right balance for social adaptation, but we, we need Jung for creativity, and uh, for a love of creativity, and for the so-called higher um, factors in in, in, uh, in human life and human engagements if we can bring all of those back into one kind of psychotherapy one model one school of approach with enough people to bring about change we'll be able to get rid of the abomination of CBT which is now a political force in the world we can get rid of naive humanism and their so-called person-centered therapy which is naive about human nature get rid of all of that we can get rid of psychological reductionism which is an absolute nonsense and engage people back with their biology and with their social functioning. Get rid of all of that, but we need the right people to do it. At the moment, there are pockets of people who are in the same mm. field, but in different corners with their backs to one another. But if, if we can bring these people into contact together, uh, then we will get a true revolution, a pre-Raphaelite brotherhood style of revolution in mm. psychotherapy, which will be good. That will be a true 21st century approach yeah. based on the old masters, which is the point of the pre-Raphaelites, to go back before Raphael. We need to go back before the things that went wrong and find out what it was that made them all work so well. And that's the manifesto for a 21st century psychotherapy. The Personal Myth Ultimate Handbook is now available for pre-order for release on January 7th, 2021. For anyone who has a yearning deep in their very genome to become who they truly feel they should be, this guide is utterly indispensable. Pick up your copy today and make 2021 the year you truly begin to become yourself.